We are so thankful for your presence today, and I'm, I know that you've seen, and it has been mentioned, the great transformation that our building has undergone this past week, and we're excited about our Vacation Bible School, and do pray that you'll uh, make your way back this evening, a meal at 5 p.m., and uh, VBS from 6 to 7.30, that's tonight, and Lord willing, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evening as well. There are VBS t-shirts at the Welcome Center for those of you who have ordered one, and uh, you can uh, pay for them then, but uh, just uh, come out and be with us and, and bring all your friends and neighbors, and uh, we'll have a, a great time beginning this evening. As has been mentioned, we'll have an adult class as well uh, here in the auditorium after the opening assembly. Terry Cagle is scheduled to be with us this evening, so we look forward to, to seeing and hearing him as well. But let's continue to pray for our VBS that it'll be a time where our children and all ages uh, can draw nearer to God and grow in their faith and their understanding of, of God's word. This morning, well, I want to show you a, a, a picture of a title of a book, uh, Where's the Piano? Where's the Piano? And I, Dan Chambers is the title, uh, the author of this little booklet. And it's one of the questions that's often asked when someone visits a church of Christ, not all churches of Christ, but uh, most churches of Christ that I know about, that they don't have uh, a piano. And so that's one of the first things that's, that's noticed. And so I want to, we've been studying some, some areas of doctrine uh, several times a month uh, throughout this year. And, and this morning, I'd like for us to consider this one. Why is it that we don't have a piano or other mechanical instruments of music? I want to tell you one thing. It's not because of a lack of ability. I mean, if you, saw, if you know anything about this second row here on my left, there's a lot of ability that we saw yesterday, and it was outstanding. It's not uh, for any reason such as that. But it may seem peculiar to many people in the religious world today. And so many, no doubt, have entered this auditorium and, and have asked this question, where's the piano? Where, where, where's the band? Where, where are the instruments? Would you believe this, that historically speaking, it's not unusual at all? Historically speaking, through the history of the church, it's not unusual at all for the assembly of Christians, Christ followers, through the centuries to not have mechanical instruments of music, to have vocal-only praise. Well, I can say that to you, but I want to demonstrate that to you. I've done some, I like to say, I'm going to get hysterical, I mean historical with you for a few moments this morning as we uh, survey some church history. We call it acapella. Do you know the origin of that name, acapella? It means literally uh, as in the chapel, as in the chapel. It's the sound, uh, it's the musical sound that fills our services. Dan Chambers writes, by the way, he's written uh, another great book, Churches in the Shape of Scripture, and uh, I'm borrowing a lot of his material and other materials that I've found. But he says it's, it's the sound that fills our services that most American churchgoers have seldom, if ever, heard in the church. It's just voices singing praises to God, 100% vocal. It's a cappella. 
meaning as in the chapel. And that meaning then comes from we sing as in the chapel, as in the church. Historically speaking, Christ followers through the centuries, through the early centuries particularly, did not have mechanical instruments of music accompanying their, their music, their, their praise. It was a cappella, as in the chapel. So let's do a little study in history. We'll begin with the church fathers. These are, this name has been attached to influential theologians, teachers, and writers from the first few centuries of church history. From roughly the days immediately after the apostles, so the end, middle and end of the first century forward for several centuries, that, uh, and we, we look at their writings and what did they say about the music in the church and worship to God. Music historian James McKinnon has written profusely about this topic. And he's written several books on early Christian and Latin medieval music history. And he has this statement. The antagonism which the fathers of the early church displayed toward instruments have two outstanding characteristics, vehemence and uniformity. Notice three words that McKinnon uses as he summarizes uh, the writings of the early church fathers. Antagonism, they were opposed to instruments. Vehemence, they were intensely opposed. And uniformity, which suggests they all intensely opposed the instruments. Now, if you keep reading in McKinnon's work, you have to notice what he's addressing. He says this, a careful reading of all patristic church father criticism of instruments will not reveal a single passage which condemns the use of instruments in church. Did you catch that? You read the church fathers, the writing of the church fathers, as they're called, you won't re read a single passage which condemns the use of instruments in church. Their writings will reflect a condemnation of of this music in regards to a banquet or the theater or a marriage ceremony, but never liturgy or as, as it pertains to the worship of the church. The implication, he continues, for the performance of early Christian music is obvious. Not only was it predominantly vocal, it was so exclusively vocal that the occasion to criticize the use of instruments in church never arose. This is the way the church fathers viewed instruments of music as a whole. And so for them to even try to be introduced into the worship of the church would have been vehemently opposed. Ashby Camp cites no less than 27 scholarly sources from different faith traditions that the singing in the early church was unaccompanied by instrumental music. The fact is recognized by nearly all historians of church music and of Christianity in the ancient and early medieval periods. What's the significance of that? Hang on to that. But what they're saying is that in the days of the church fathers and the centuries just following the establishment of, of the church in Acts 2, it was purely vocal, purely vocal. The question I'm wanting you to ask, why? Why was it purely vocal? 
We go to the Middle Ages from between the 5th and 15th centuries. Some historians say that for the first thousand years of church history, it was purely vocal. Robert Godfrey is a church history professor, and he, as a historian, he admits this. In the worship of the church, it appears that for almost the first thousand years of its history, no instruments were used in Christian worship. These are historians. Some of them would say they have no problem using instruments of music in worship to accompany our praise, but they're saying historically, for the first thousand years, it was vocal only. It was a cappella. He says first thousand years. Actually, it could probably run at least to the year 1300. There are a few isolated instances of an organ being introduced into worship of, of a church. But the norm at, the end, at that time was still vocal only praise. And it remained the norm until the early 1300s. Jo Joseph Bingham, a 19th century church historian, pointed out, Music in churches is, an, is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music not so. For it is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas in the year 1250. But I want you to think about that. 1,250. That many centuries after the first century in which the church was established, it remained vocal praise only, a cappella. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the most called the most influential Roman Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages, there's, has, this, has these words attributed to him, A.D. 1250. Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God. And from this passage, we're surely warranted, says this uh, McClintock and Strong Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical lit Literature, we are surely warranted in concluding, concluding that there was no ecclesiastical use of organs in the time of Aquinas. And I hope that you're impressed as I was that for centuries it was vocal praise only. Why? Why was that? In the 1500s, organs had become a fixture in almost every important church building in Europe. So 1500s. Keep in mind that this all happened in the Roman Catholic Church because Catholicism was the overwhelming predominant church throughout most of Western Europe. I will note with you that in the year 1054, there was a great, it's called the Great Schism, when the Roman Catholic Church, the predominant church of Europe at that time, split you had the western side, which was predominantly the Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Orthodox. Interestingly, till that day, no instruments of music were added to vocal praise. 1054, Eastern Orthodox began. It continued to this day, to my knowledge, they do not use mechanical instruments of music. But back on the western side, 
A few years later, in the 1500s, you come to the Reformers. The Reformers wanted to reform the Catholic Church and, and they wanted to take it back to the model of the church founded in the pages of the New Testament. And one of the things they wanted to reform was corruptions in public worship. And they viewed adding other instruments as part of that corruption. Zwingli was one of the key leaders of the Reformation movement. Uh, Timothy George, a professor of history and doctrine at Beeson Divinity School, talks about Zwingli and how passionate he was. The Catholic authorities were shocked at the rigor with which Zwingli per pursued his reforms. In 1527, the organ at the Great Minster in Zurich, Switzerland was dismantled and removed, despite the fact that Zwingli was an accomplished musician who had mastered a number of instruments. So Zwingli, one of those reformers, says we need to do away with the organ and other mechanical instruments of music. John Calvin was another leader in the Reformation movement. How did he view it? Listen to his words. I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and the viol and that kind of music, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was part of the service of the temple. But when they, referring to Christians, frequent their sacred assemblies, musical instruments and celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of, of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law, that is, the law of Moses. So here are the, the prominent reformers in the Reformation movement vocalizing uh, the, to do away with the organs and so forth and have vocal-only praise. John Price sums up uh, these reformers and he says that they would take no rest until instruments were removed. And by the late 1500s, this corruption of church worship, which had crept in during the Dark Ages, had been effectively banished from the Reformed uh, churches. The greatest spiritual revival, he calls it, since the days of the apostles had returned the church to the apostolic simplicity of unaccompanied congregational singing. One more, well, a couple more historical references. You remember hearing about the Puritans of the six, fifth, late 1500s and early 1600s. The Puritans, both American and English, continue, continued to hold this same view of instruments and worship that most of the Reformers held. Uh, Princeton professor Horton Davies made this observation about the Puritans. The Puritans welcomed instrumental music into their homes while refusing its assistance in their meeting houses. This restriction is based in part on the demand for simplicity and sincerity in worship, but also on their interpretation of Scripture and the fin finality of the authority of the New Testament for them. So even the Puritans uh, advocated for pray, vocal praise only, a cappella singing in worship. That brings us to the 1700s. That's when Christianity's historic vocal only conviction began to erode uh, in, in Protestantism. 
By the late 1800s, vocal-only praise was an endangered species in the American and Western European church life. John Spencer Kerwin, a member of the Royal Academy of Music and president of a musical college in London, wrote in 1880, Men still living can remember the time when organs were very seldom found outside the Church of England. The Methodists, Independents, and Baptists rarely had them, and by Presbyterians, they were stoutly opposed. But he's reflecting on a time when mechanical instruments of music were not the norm as they had become in his day. There were still voices, even during that time, they were pleading with churches and churchgoers to, to maintain the historic Christian practice of a cappella singing. Among those was a well-known Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. For the last uh, 38 years of his life, he filled the pulpit of the largest Baptist church in the world in London. And every week, thousands would come to hear him. But one sound that they would not hear in their assembly was the sound of mechanical instruments and music. This short history lesson shows us that historically speaking, a cappella praise was not, is not unusual. That that was the predominant practice for at least 1,300 years after the church began. Now, the question is why? Why was that the practice? Why did most Christians throughout history practice vocal-only praise when they gathered for worship? And I want to make note with you that during the first century, pagan religions used instruments profusely. The Jewish temple was filled with instrumentation, as we'll see. So in that environment, the early church still practiced vocal singing in, in praise to God in their times of worship. And why is it that they did that? Why is it that churches of Christ still maintain that practice? Most churches of Christ. What if God has specified what he desires in worship? And let's test that as we go this is a huge overview of the, of the scriptures. Let's go back to the days of tabernacle worship. You remember when God instructed the people of Israel to, to build this tabernacle as a central part of, of their religious life. You remember how many instructions were given as to how that structure was to be built. It was something that could be taken up and put back down as they traveled in the wilderness. But there were also instructions as to what was to be done in that tabernacle worship. Here's some readings from Numbers chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregations and for directing the movement of the camps. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. Numbers 10, verse 10. Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a memorial for you 
before your God. I am the Lord your God. In that brief reference, you'll see that here are instruments, trumpets namely, that are prescribed as part of all the proceedings centered around the tabernacle. And they're prescribed by God through Moses. Then there was Old Testament temple worship. This transition took place under David's oversight. You remember David wanted to build a temple for the, for the Lord. God said, no, you're a man of war, but your son shall build this temple. But David uh, not only got together, collaborated in an effort to get all the, the, the needed items and financial backing and material things to build this temple, but also prescribed much of the worship. A lot of instruments were added to the worship of God in the temple. Harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets. Why did David do this? Why did David do this? As you explore that question, you'll come a couple of hundred years later when Hezekiah was king over Judah. And he was restoring temple worship after a long period of decay and neglect. And notice this reference from 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So David's regulations, including the additions that he, that he made, were according to the commandment of the Lord. It was part of the temple worship. And when Hezekiah set out to restore temple worship, almost three centuries after David died, he pulled out David's instructions that he had received from the Lord. 200 years later, Zerubbabel and Jeshua followed the same instructions. 50 years after that, Nehemiah followed the same instructions as he led a yet another restoration effort. So in temple worship, there were these instruments that accompanied vocal praise. But then we come to the New Testament. And what we find is just a complete absence of mechanical instruments prescribed. And church history supports that for at least 1,300 years. Why? Why were they not used? Where did they get their instructions? God communicated his instructions for the church through the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's why the early church, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. They were the ones that, were, that God was using to guide the early church. So what instruments do the apostles command us to use? And the answer comes back as you read the New Testament. No instruments save one. No instruments save one. And why did the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans... All of these people historically, why did they limit their, their practice of music in the, in the worship assemblies to vocal praise? Is based upon this very fact. 
that what we find in the pages of the New Testament are instructions to sing to the Lord, but never to the inclusion of other instruments. Ephesians 5.19 is one passage. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody. Singing, the word, the Greek word there is translated singing on purpose. Making melody is the, is the Greek word solo, and a lot has been written. You investigate this, a lot has been written about how solo, and here's an outline of biblical usage of that term. It means to pluck, to pull out, to cause, to vibrate by touching, to twang. And many say that's, that's used in plucking uh, strumming an instrument. So there you go, sing and make melody with instruments. But Paul, in this text, identifies the instrument to be plucked. Singing and making melody with what? With your heart to the Lord. Hugo McCord said two actions are set forth by God through his word. There's something external and audible. That's the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 12, or 13, verse 15, singing. And then there's something internal and inaudible, and that is making melody in our hearts, plucking the strings of our heart as we worship God in vocal praise. Other passages, Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. F. Lagarde Smith wrote this, in contrast to the many Old Testament passages referring to musical instruments and temple worship, in the New Testament text, not one sound of a musical instrument is heard. Not a trumpet, not a harp, not the quietest jingle of a tambourine. Singing, yes. Musical instruments, no. Relative to musical instruments, there's only an ominous, haunting silence. So what's the conclusion? Since God didn't place any instruments in Christian music other than the instrument of our voices plucking the strings of our heart. These early church fathers, etc., said we're not going to bring any in. That is the approach of most churches of Christ today. It wasn't included in the worship of the New Testament church, even for centuries. There isn't, Dan Chambers summarizes, there isn't a single command from the apostles to use instruments of music in Christian worship, nor a single example in the New Testament of Christians worshiping with instruments. So if they didn't use them, our charter is to restore the church of the New Testament. And so we pattern our, everything we teach, believe, and practice after the New Testament. And the New Testament is completely silent about uh, and even, but it specifies in our worship to God is vocal praise to Him. What may seem strange to people who are not accustomed to a cappella singing comes by many to be loved and to be appreciated 
in the fact that we are all, even if we've been trained vocally or not, after all, we're quick to point out, the Bible says, make a joyful noise. Some of us, that's, that's all we feel like we can muster is a joyful noise. But we're all communing with our God in spiritual worship, in vocal praise to God, plucking the strings of our heart. These things add up to the same simple conclusion that the vast majority of our Christian ancestors came to. And we're going to continue to stand where they stood since God didn't place any instruments in Christian worship save our voices with our hearts. We're not going to bring any in. I hope that's helpful. I hope the historical approach is maybe enlightening to us. But if you have been a member of the church for a long time or just visiting the Creekwood Church today, that's part of the explanation why you won't see a piano or an organ or any other instrument of music. And that's why you'll hear, to the best of our ability, raising up our voices in praise to God as we worship Him. In a book entitled Psalms of the Heart, George Sweeting talks about the experiences of two missionaries, John and Elaine Beekman. John and Elaine Beekman traveled to, to minister, to reach out to the coal Indians of southern Mexico. They rode mules and traveled by dugout canoes to reach this tribe. Interesting thing as they began reaching out to these coal Indians. These Indians didn't know how to sing. Isn't that strange? They didn't know how to sing. But after ministering to them for about 25 years and translating uh, the New Testament into the language of the coal Indians, when the Beekmans left this tribe, they left a lot of Christ followers who knew how to sing. They knew how to sing. They love to sing now, Sweeting commented, because they have something to sing about. They have something to sing about. Folks, Christians have something to sing about. Sing with me. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt. I could not pay, I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never I hope that not only passed your vocal cords, but it originated in your heart. That that's the real reason to sing today. If you know that amazing grace that's come because Jesus died for you. And our prayer is that if you haven't, that you'll appropriate that grace into your life by confessing your faith in Jesus, that he is the son of God and that he died for you, that you'll, having turned from repentance, you turn to follow Jesus as a way of life. That if you haven't been baptized into Christ, 
so that your sins can be washed away by his blood, that you'll do that even this morning. And folks, as I think about the Ethiopian who heard about Jesus and Philip, Starting at that scripture, Isaiah 53, preached unto him Jesus. They came into a body of water. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? If you believe with your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, you may. And he made that good confession. They went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And the Spirit caught Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. But what did the Ethiopian eunuch do? He went away rejoicing. Why? Because he had something to sing about. He had something to sing about. If you want to sing that song with the full confidence of knowing that you've been blood-bought by Jesus, why not respond to him on his terms? If you need the prayers of the church this morning, prayer is another wonderful part of our worship to God, our corporate worship, where we can pray for one another. If you've been... If you've wandered away as a child of God, need to come home, or if there's some burden weighing on your heart, we want to pray with you and for you. And won't you come right now as we stand and sing?